Hey everybody. For this week's episode, we're going to start with a couple of old commercials. So for those not watching the video broadcast on our LinkedIn, but rather are just listening in podcast form, I'll jump in to provide some context after the ads. Cool? All right, I'll be right back. Introducing Raspberry Almond M&M's Premiums, rich premium chocolate with luscious almonds and the sweet taste of raspberries. It's your heart's desire in chocolate. Cut! Cut! Ooh. That's not supposed to happen. <laughs> Okay, so 75% of that one featured a sexy cartoon candy character rolling around on what I believe was a tiny bed dressed in red satin and silk sheets. Don't worry, we're not doing a deep dive into the cursed history of the sexy green M&M. There's already an article on Jezebel that took that bullet for all of us. Let's do one more, even if you can't see it. See if you can guess what this one's for before they reveal it at the end. I love going all natural. It just makes me feel better. Nothing between me and my 100% all natural, juicy, grass-fed beef. Introducing the all-natural burger, the first ever in fast food, with no antibiotics, no added hormones, and no steroids, only at Carl's Jr. Man, that one's pretty wild. Okay, so what exactly are they trying to provoke in their audience? They want us to want their product, so why not just tell us how tasty the cheeseburger is? I don't know, man. This one's going to be interesting. Hello, world. What is up? Welcome to the Feelings Lab. I'm your host, Matt Forte, and for today's episode, we're talking about desire. So this episode, in my opinion, has the potential to get a little messy. You see, desire, much like all of the emotions and topics we explore in the Feelings Lab, exists on a vast spectrum with some really high highs and some pretty dark lows. To me, desire more so than most can be an immensely powerful motivational force. Your desire to feel better about yourself can push you to eat healthy, work out, focus on your mental health, all good things. But that same exact feeling is equally responsible for some of your dirtiest secrets, and I'm willing to bet for a lot of people, some of your biggest regrets. For centuries, religions have tried to both suppress and harness it. Major corporations have used it to move billions of cheeseburgers and cars. Countless works of art, books, movies, and songs exist solely to explore and exploit our desires. So why is it this feeling that is around us all the time can be so uncomfortable to talk about? What happens if we neglect that drive and ignore our desires completely? And why do some people fight tooth and nail to obtain the thing they desire most only to feel completely unfulfilled? Also. Why are some foods just objectively sexy? To be fair, that last question is probably more about some wires crossed in my brain than it is for the general populace. But nonetheless, we're getting deep into it today, and I've got my super feeling friends with me as well as one hell of a guest. Joining me as always, Alan, Dacker, and Danielle. Nice to see everyone. And a ridiculously special treat, the first double crown winner from RuPaul's Drag Race, season 10's Miss Congeniality, and the first queen of color inducted into the Hall of Fame after winning All-Stars 4. She's hosted her own groundbreaking talk show, The Exchange Rate, 
You can catch her super popular podcast, Ebony and Irony, where all podcasts are heard. And her latest single, Love Like This, is out right now. Please welcome to the show, the one, the only, Monet Exchange is here, everybody. Monet, my goodness, look at you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be back in your company. I am extraordinarily happy to have you here. It has been too long, I would say. For sure. Too long. (laughs) It's super nice to have you here. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, As per usual, guys, I've got my little card with my three questions. I'm not going to really read through it, though, because I kind of folded them into the intro. Actually, what I want to do, I want to dive right in. Uh, You know, I've been starting these chats off by going back to the beginning of the emotion and defining it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And we can do that. We'll get to that at some point. What I I really wanted to do for this one, I want to start off a little more present day-ish and talk about the culture of desire. Uh, Danielle, I'd reached out to you earlier because I was trying to like wrap my head around this this language of desire, especially like the aesthetic of desire and design and its presence throughout like, every facet of our culture. I'd love to kind of get into and unpack some of the super cool stuff you were talking to me about, uh, if you would be so kind. I think what fascinates me about desire is like it it can show up in so many different forms. Like I think like this is one of my like favorite quotes and it's actually about spiritual ecstasy from this like Hindu mystic a bazillion years ago, but it is like the sexiest quote, which is this, um, so this dude Ramakrishna, he says, when the flower blooms, the bees come uninvited. And I was like, what? So like, there's that. (laughs) I love that. And then there's like, as we, as we were like kind of gearing towards this, I was like, all right, how can I observe it in my life? Where is it? What's interesting? Like that little experiment of like, where is it showing up and what's my real feeling of it? And honestly, what was so curious is my daughter who's like 16 months old. So I think of like origin, like the first little feelings of desire or whatever. And I was walking around, there's this hike near our house that um, has natural blackberries. And so there's like, when they're red, they're actually not ripe. And then when they're like really black, purple, they're ripe. And so she knows now when, when they're ripe or when they're not. And what was funny was we came up on one and it's like full of thorns, but she was looking at it and she went, oh. and then she got it and put it in her mouth. And then she was like, oh. and it's almost like, that's like baby desire, you know? And then yeah. we like, we get into like full on grown up culture. It's all happening. And then it's like, I think, so here's my question for all of us and Monet specifically for you too. It's like, so the language of desire to me, if I was trying to think about it, it's like big things, bright things, bold colors. So in like bougie domain, I think of like Georgia O'Keeffe and her like big flowers that like freaked everybody out because they were so (laughs) erotic back in her day. Right. People were like, oh my God, I know what I'm looking at. It is not a flower. And then I think of like, Monet in your world, like, I love how people are like, why do you keep wearing those pussycat wigs? And it's like, you go bright, you go big. I'm looking at your gorgeous spectrum of heels behind you. And I'm like, the taller the heel, the crazier the look. So like, why? What what is it about the bright, the shiny, the glossy that just like pops for us in this space? Ooh, that's an interesting question. I love that question. And and I do want to dive into that. And I, Monet, I'm going to give you a second to, to kind of ponder and we'll come back. Yeah. Dacker, can you tell me anything about the science, why it is we're drawn to the shiny, to the special, where that comes from, that it's such an early age? No, I know. And I love Danielle's examples. And I think they get us in the right direction. And Monet's heels are pointing in the dire- that direction too. So, you know, I mean, I think a part of First of all, the thing we have to grapple with when we turn to desires, Danielle said, is like, 
malleability. It's about a lot of different things. It's not just one thing. It's a lot of different people. Um, but to me, it has to do with wanting and, and in the deep sense of our survival and evolution, we got to want things, right? And I think we want, we have basic needs that we want to fulfill, like food and sex and warmth. And I think the other thing that's interesting about desire, and I'd love to hear Monet riff off this, is how sensory it is, right? It's about the senses. It's about touch. It's about the body, obviously. And that really sets it apart from things we love, right? Or, which are a little bit more sacred or spiritual or kind of enduring and ethereal. So I think it's about how in our emotional lives, we, it, it registers in a feeling what we want physically, like that Blackberry that, that Danielle's child was reaching for and so many other things. Yeah. Um, I, for me, I think that I'm um, kind of going back to what Danielle was saying. I, I think that what is really captivating about that type of desire is, is how spellbinding it is and why yeah. things that are sparkly and things that are shiny and things that are, uh, that are in that realm, they, there is like, there's a sort of mysticism about it. It, it mm. just feels magical. And I think that that's, that is a feeling that we can all go back to childhood to when we were yeah. teens, or when we're adults, is that like, it just feels like you're, it's, it's, it's very entrancing and, mm. and that like nebulous of what that is that we can't exactly put a put a finger on exactly what it is i think that is desire that is like i want to know more about the thing that i know nothing about because it's 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 magical do you have like uh like how far back can you go memory wise of like one of the earliest things that you found like mystifying or magical that caught your attention in that way you know, I think for me, um, something that has that has been a very strong tether to many things in my life, whether whether it be love, family, or sex, is food. And I remember specifically my um, my grandmother would um, on Sunday she would make this because my family's from St. Lucia, and she'd make something called bouillon, which is this like one pot soup thing. And it would, and it's something that she was literally from six a.m. until it was ready at like. 5 p.m. She would spend like almost 11 hours in the kitchen all day long mm. in the kitchen, like slaving over this and and like putting all of her love and all of her passion and all of her, this thing into, into this meal that my entire family would come together. And I, to me, like going out and playing and coming back and still seeing her in there, I was always it almost felt like a sorceress uh <laughs> making this brew in this like it. magic uh room which was her kitchen so i think to me that's like the earliest place i can put a finger on like like magic happening in uh, in in this room the kitchen that brought all these people in together at the same time into one place to enjoy and commune and be together like i was like how is she doing that like what is she putting in this thing that's, that 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 everyone wants and wants to be a part of and wants to do together that's such a beautiful story. One, thank you for sharing. Two, yeah. has that memory ever like infused itself into uh, the work that you've done and your art and your music and your performances or anything like that? Oh, yeah, for sure. Every time I am going about a performance or putting a performance together, I always there, um, you know, even as, as a drag, obviously drag is very showy, it's very flashy. I'm always thinking about what can I put into this performance that will leave people not just screaming, clapping and cheering, but with the... Like that, like that, like catch your breath and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe that this happens. It's very, um, um, I always want, I try my best to do that in, in performances, no matter how big or how small. And again, it doesn't always have to be something over the yeah. top and crazy. They're just like little things you can do in a performance that meet, that leave people um, mouth agape and wondering, how did she do that? And, or not even how did she do that, but 
wow, just like that feeling of wow, that 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 sensation of I want more of that. I want to um, I want to see it again. Um, mm. So for me, I always try to put that into my performances to give people that like to, to want to desire to see me again, to want to to make them right. come back and um, and uh, pay that twenty dollars for that ticket next time. <laughs> well, that's like a big part of it, right? A lot of what you're doing, you're putting on a performance, you're entertaining, but you're essentially you're you're cultivate, you're trying to provoke desire. You're trying yeah. to get them to crave more Monet is yeah. what you want yeah. the audience to do. And uh, Matt, I have to. I have to ask, I have to, sorry. Do it. Well, I mean, this, I have to ask you a question, and I, I had never made the connection, and it's such an interesting one to mysticism and ecstasy, right? And bliss. Yeah. And I'm wondering, as you're creating these sparkly shows and all the, all of that, does is there a sense do you feel of of kind of a collective ecstasy in in the performance or mysticism? Oh yeah, for sure. I think that it is a very uh, um, tangible energy in a room when a performance, w- w- not just drag for myself. When I go see performance, I, I'll never forget when I the first live concert I ever saw was Beyonce in two thousand nine. She was doing the Beyonce Experience. <laughs> That's a high concert. bar for a first concert, man. That is, that is, <laughs> that was That's the first concert one. I had ever seen. My first, it was it was at Madison Square Garden, oh. and even though it was the cheapest seats, I mean we were, we were pretty far back. Um, Beyonce literally looked like an ant in, in the middle of the Serengeti, <laughs> uh, but, but you know, but I but the whole energy in the room was so electric because of just like just how 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 she moved how her hair moved when she turned and how and like and it was just it honestly was spellbinding and and yeah beyonce has done all these things since then but i always go back to that performance and i always think of how can how can how can my performances and what i do give someone else that same like uh, mystical sense of uh, that like ecstasy of this was just so great for my eyes to consume so mm. that that was that's definitely um, a moment in my head that I will never forget that really made me understand the power of performance and the power of really mm. um, owning your magic on a stage I think I was in your same seats when I saw Prince <laughs> at Madison Square Garden. And it was like, so I was just looking at an ant in Cuban heels, like owning the energy of that whole space. But what I just, what I just connected to that because Monet, your language is so delicious. Like you've got desire dripping out your mouth because it's just like the words you're using, like the spellbinding, and it's like there's this allure to it, but. But I never yeah. connected um, the sense of desire yeah. and what you're talking about, which is the performance of and the creation of desire, which is sensation. And the reason that a sensation is a sensation or like that your performance or Beyonce or Prince is a sensation is because it's all of the things you're feeling all at once that make you feel like you're bursting with life, which is just mm. yeah. juice. It is juice. Yeah. One of the things that I love about having this platform and having everyone here to have this discussion is I think the default for a lot of people, and I I feel like I might have touched the top, is that desire, you immediately go sex. And, you Mm -hmm. know, you think of Prince and you think of Beyonce (laughs) and it's hard. You associate sexual. I think of uh, Monet. A lot of the work you've done is very sexual and beautiful. Certainly not everything you do has a sexual component. I've worked with you on stuff. We The exchange rate we did leading up to the election. Nothing sexual about that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But it's, it's very much a big component that I think a lot of people define 
default to. And so here we are right out of the gate, less than 10 minutes in, we're already breaking down all those different elements. But I'm curious for you and in feeding off the energy from your audience, have you found it challenging to provoke and cultivate the desire that you want from your audience when there isn't a sexual component? Like, is it easier when you're doing something sexy to get the the reaction that you're looking for? Do you have to work a little harder if it's not as sexy as it normally like would be? Yeah, I think obviously, you know, um, sex is something that comes uh, second nature to me, to me as a performer. I, I can't speak for all performers, but definitely to me, because, you know, drag, a lot of drag is very sexy. And that's kind of that was the birthplace of drag. Right. In these in these dimly lit bars uh, all the way at the back. And, you know, so it's always uh, very raunchy and, and um, sometimes overtly sexual. But, uh, you know, I find myself performing, especially now that drag race has catapulted drag into the mainstream and we're not just performing for um grown adult gay men and lesbian women we're performing for sometimes 13 year olds sometimes nine year olds <laughs> I, I did a christmas tour one time when there were seven year olds in the audience so it's <laughs> it's 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 i think in, in those instances it's like it's really breaking that desire down and kind of channeling going back to little kevin watching my grandmother create this, um, create that same desire and that same passion in her food. And for me, that's sometimes in the words I'm using it from in, in the show, if, if I'm hosting the show or um, uh, uh, creating that mysticism, that mysticism, not in a sexual way, but just in like a mysterious way of performing um, for different ages and different groups of people. So yes, um, sex is is an easy default, yeah. but I think the magic comes when you can challenge yourself outside of them. Like, how can I, evoke that same type of desire and mysticism by not being sexual. I think that that unlocks another part of myself as a performer, mm. as an, as an entertainer and how, um, and how I can do that successfully. I can't help but think of in the category, like your look in the category angelic white for this, like the, yeah. the heart of, I mean, the heart piece of that was just outrageously, I mean, it awe inspiring. It's so beautiful. But like that's that's a beautiful so example of like that that is transcendent. I mean, actually, I'll yeah. shut up. I want to hear I want to hear that for you. Like how how does that work for you? Because like you said, it's beyond. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that I think I think that's that's a perfect example is yeah, it was it was this like beautiful intersection of drag, but also um uh, religion and 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 how where those things intersect. And it was like, how can I create this like this this beautiful moment and not be sexual? And it was just to and it was a, a subtle thing of taking off a cloak and revealing this um this um this heart on on my chest and mm. and that and like you said it was it, it was it was transcendent because people of all different religions mm. and creeds were like i'm not christian i'm not religious but to but to see you reveal your heart in the middle of i want to be not one of the biggest platform for drag um in the world it was it was like it was oh my god it was amazing it was beautiful it 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 it, it made me believe and i don't know what i believe in so i mm -hmm. think that that is another uh piece of the puzzle um thank you danielle i, I forgot about how great that look was oh my god <laughs> i mean literally oh my god <laughs> <laughs> you know and, and matt i just have to weigh in is that you know we i've been doing a lot of work on awe and we had awe on our show and it's so interesting a lot of the great mystics just back to you know, Monet's early observation, uh, Julian of Norwich was one of the most influential women writers in the English language. First book by a woman, 14th century. And her revelations of God are all desire and 
ecstasy and love. And it's a, mm. it's just this great boundary that Alan's been yeah. exploring in his work of like, what is that boundary between desire and mysticism that Monet's moving into? And, and uh, it's a That's great a, question. A perfect segue, because I wanted to bring Alan into the fold as we're talking about all these overlapping things. Who better to ask this question than the man who's mapping all these overlapping <laughs> things? So, Alan, Mr. Maps, Mr. Maps, my nuance guy. Uh, I'm very curious as to what what kind of uh, light can you shine on this for us? I, I like to believe the answer is a little more complex than sex is the default because it's the easiest. But what have you seen as you're mapping what overlaps with desire and all these different pieces and areas that, that kind of come together? Well, I mean, desire, the feeling of desire is so fundamental to so many things that we think of it as craving. We think of it as food. We think of it as money, like everything we do, everything we look at. I want that. I don't want that. Um, but then when it comes to expressing desire, I think this, you have to think about the social function of that. Like what, what, when is it beneficial to let somebody know that you desire something? And the quintessential time for that is like sex, right? Like, that is such an important time. Although, of course, there's many other moments. Um, like if you look at, you know. Uh, begging behavior in animals or dogs express desire. They lick their lips when they want food. Um, the lip licking comes out of, of course, the desire for food. And it's been co-opted by uh, the, you know, mating by signaling desire. Um, and, and you see that in the, you know, the lip bite and all these different expressions, you see the, the vocal expression of desire be kind of co-opted for romance and sex and all of that, because just it's such a prevalent part of when we express desire um, and when we perform desire, uh, what that will indicate, especially as adults. But of course, um, what's interesting is that that makes desire really hard to talk about as an emotion that people feel yeah. across the entire lifespan. Um, I mean, Danielle's example was a baby. And I think what, what we did this experiment where we looked at expressions, the facial expression of desire in videos on YouTube. So millions of videos people posted online. And what, when does that happen? Yeah. And the most prominent examples where it happened in every single culture are models um, and, you know, the expression of desire in uh, kind of the performance of desire and models and candy, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which makes a lot of sense. But you can, as you can imagine, you don't want to confuse those. <laughs> That's amazing. And do we know, because I know you've actually like physically looked at people's brains and mapped them to see what are they, is it physically close together? Why are they so uh, linked in our brains? Well, there's, I mean, desire is like the most, one of the most fundamental things. It's, uh, you know, the pursuit of an uncertain reward. And there's a really strong literature on the brain mechanisms of that, of that. it's dopamine. Yeah. Right. And dopamine is active uh, in the anticipation of reward. And so the famous example is reinforcement learning with like Pavlov's dogs, where he paired a bell with uh, food. And eventually the dogs salivated when they heard the bell because it was anticipation of food. And you can show that during that anticipation, there's a spike in dopamine. Um, and that's like the quintessential role of dopamine is to signal that there's this uncertain reward and you can get it. Um, and of course, that feeling is so fundamental, but it reverberates through your whole psyche. If you're a human and you yeah. have all these different, you know, really complex ways of fulfilling desires that you need to prepare yourself for. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking desire you're saying it's, it's rooted in acquisition. It's about, you know, attaining something. So then mm -hmm. what is the part of the brain that takes over for a lot of people after the fact you, you hear all the time, it's not the destination, it's the journey. Like what evolutionary advantage is there to, to the feeling of actually acquiring the thing you desire and then still feeling unfulfilled? What do we know about that? 
Well, there's like negative reward prediction there. So like we, we predict that we'll get something. And um, if we don't get enough of it, if we don't get as much as we think, there's actually a negative response um, in dopaminergic cells and it makes us want more. And uh, you see that in you know addiction, for example, when you're addicted mm. to drugs, it's because suddenly you need more dopamine to get the regular reward response, the regular, even the regular desire response. Um, so... Yeah, it's fundamentally a prediction thing. It's about the, mm-hmm. the brain predicting when you need to exert energy to get what you want and when it's most beneficial to do that. But, you know, Matt, just to oh, wait, go on. Yeah. it's Please interesting. Go and this is where neuroscience is cool, right? How do we, to your question, how do we pull apart desire from getting the thing, enjoying it, living a life with the thing, right? The, whatever the, you may desire. And there's a lot of interesting work on the opioid system is about savoring mm-hmm. and enjoying and feeling comfortable in your skin with the thing that you have love, if you will. Uh, and opioids are, um, you know, we have opioid epidemics, epidemics, which are tragic, but they are in some sense about belonging and, and enjoying the presence of things. Hmm. And in some sense, the epidemic is about yearning for that kind of experience. So the neuroscience helps us pull apart desire from enjoying uh, yeah. love. Um, which is which is important what's interesting too when i think about opioids is obviously that is the poppies and you think of poppies and they are like Mm. bright orange bright red like Mm -hmm. it's interesting that the natural signal for the consumption of that thing you know that that space and and it's like makes me think too alan your mention of candy um this is and there's probably some deeper smarter person's thought here that would connect like you know, dopamine and addiction to technology and where I'm going with this. But one of my favorite ads of all time was actually um, when Apple was reintroducing the Mac, the iMac in 1997, and it was all those colors and it was see-through and it was like all of these kind of language of desire things we Mm. were talking about earlier. It's like the see-through and the colors and the spinning in space and all of that. And what was interesting is that the copywriting that was done by Shiat for that, it was literally eye candy and yum. And it was like crossing these spaces where it was like, forget the beige boxes of your, like we are here with something fresh and poppy and beautiful and present. And I, it's like, I'm just so curious about like, Monet, you were talking about like food and how that informs your beauty and mm. performance. And I think of like technology, mm-hmm. there's all this borrowing going on. And I just yeah. wonder mm-hmm. what that does for us. Mm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we're all wondering right now. We'll come yeah. back because I do want to get into that. Uh, <laughs> but Danielle, you know, as you're met, it's just so interesting that when it comes to marketing products, it seems like the two moves are either make us want to eat it or sleep with it. That's it. Those are the two options, regardless of what the thing is. We, if it, whether it's food or not, they make us want to consume it. I'm at, you know, candy, yum, <laughs> or whatever it is. We, they want us to look at it and romanticize it in some kind of way. And just culturally, how did we arrive there? How did, you know, who does anybody in this room, can they speak to that journey? and how we landed on those are the two moves. That's all we've got at this point. Well, I think since the dawn of time, but I mean, I don't know any cavemen, but I imagine that food <laughs> and sex were, you know, those were the, and, and, and hunting and gathering. Those are the only things to do back then. So I think we have, <laughs> since the beginning of man, I'm sure we have always um, um, linked 
uh, a food to desire and also um, sex as well. And I mean, sex is the oldest profession. We see it everywhere. It's yeah. constantly being <laughs> shoved on our throats in commercials and magazines, on TV and video games, um, you know, everywhere. So I think it seems like not to you know, diminish or whatever, but sex is the lowest hanging fruit in terms of desire. It's like, yeah. it's like, okay, you think of desire sex, you know, that's like, that, that is the, um, the knee jerk response when you think about desire. But I think desire is so much more complicated than like, um, you guys have all been, um, saying there are so many layers to desire that we, that even now it's conversation I've never thought of and I'm processing. I'm, I love when that happens. I love, the, I love like starting with the caveman origin, but then like when you talk about like food and sex in that way, it's like, I think of that, that all the Carl's Jr. ads that like the one who's popping is like Paris Hilton eating the cheeseburger in the like writhing around the car. Right. everything's shiny, like all of it, the food's shiny, she's shiny, the car's shiny. And so um, it's funny because I'm like, what? That if that's like the lowest common denominator of desire, do we have like an amygdala desire that's like reptile desire? And then is there like a prefrontal desire? Like, do we have a higher mm. level of desire or this like longing yeah. we're talking about? Scientists, go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the nucleus accumbens is like the deep desire. That's like the deep brain region that does it. Yeah. And then the prefrontal cortex is the executive function desire. So yes, you're exactly spot on. <laughs> I got half yeah. of that. I got, yeah. Uh, I appreciate it. Besides food and sex, there's also, you know, as you were saying, the visual part of it, right? Like shiny and also the red lipstick, red, right? Like that, I think red come, maybe comes from fruit. Like we, as cavemen, go out the red thing is usually tasty <laughs> so that's another part of it interesting very very, very interesting it's so very reference you know to, to piggyback off of that red lip but also now you see a really big trend in beauty and makeup is uh high gloss so like you put on like a new coat mm. looking for like a shiny gloss on it and that's sexy that's that's desirable wow it's so it just reminds me of a frosted donut that's just where I go. That's not where my mind was. It's so funny that you brought up the Carl's Jr. ad, though, because in doing my research for this, Danielle, I'm looking, and, and this may be drifting a little bit uh, to the left uh, or, or right of desire, but it's just one of the things that's just so funny to me is how did we culturally get from like Lucy and Desi Arnaz in separate beds to Paris Hilton writhing around on the hood of whatever car that was eating a bacon cheeseburger? It's like, how did we cross that bridge and like the, the journey to get there culturally? Uh, you know, what what do you think about that? I'm curious, Danielle or Monet, anybody. I was just thinking, like the thing, the thing I hear coming up in everyone and Matt, you're pointing to it is like, if it would, if it would have, if it would have gone from like Lucy and Desi at one point to where we are now, it feels like desire is about the thing that's just out of our reach. And it's the yeah. longing and the pushing and the, go and it's like, what's going to pull us in that high gloss lip, that bigger heel, that whatever, you know, that taller person mm. that, you know, it's like, what's, what's just beyond. And it's almost like this, like transgressive, also transcendent. It's like this, just the, that kind of crossing the border thing mm. or crossing a boundary thing that keeps pulling us into something else. And it's, I think, you know, this is why, again, like to go back to angelic white or, you know, <laughs> whatever it is, it's like, 
it's sometimes it's like barely showing anything. So it's like whatever the thing is that's against the thing that's become yeah. the norm, that counter impulse is like, ooh, oh, la la, what's that? So I don't know. That's just, again, more questions than answers always for me, but. <laughs> it all goes in the pot. It all goes in. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, you know, you talk about pushing boundaries and, and you talk about evolving and all that. And Monet, um, your latest video for Love Like This is this beautifully shot, mm. sexy, like queer, Desire. amazing Caribbean. Yeah, it's all. And there's not. It's like it's a sexy video. Uh, there, There's not like there's no nudity or anything. It's just people that desire one another, having a great time, enjoying each other. But like. I feel you're bringing these desires and bringing this, the, like I said, this this queer Caribbean love story to the the mainstream culture. That's not an easy thing to do to push that needle in that direction. I was just going through some of the YouTube comments and there are so many people that are just like, they love the music and they love the video, but more so they love what you're doing for the culture and mm -hmm. the fact that you made this video. You know, are you considering all those things or are you just trying to be true to yourself? Where does a video and a statement like that come from within you? Um, yeah, I think for me, definitely comes from uh, wanting to make a statement. You know, as, as I said before, my family is very heavily West Indian and I, I, I grew up in a heavily West Indian household. I lived in St. Lucia for uh, 10 years out of my life um, as, as a little kid. And um, in terms of this video specifically, uh, reggae was such a big part of my family dynamic. It was, my, it was what we listened to on the weekends and my brother listened to, etc. And then... Uh, when I was about 12 years old, I just remember sitting on listening to one of the songs. I think it was a song by Beanie Man. And I was like, <laughs> this is really homophobic. And got to, and I started to like really listen to the lyrics of so many of them. And they were so misogynistic, homophobic, transport, all the things. And so when it came time now, fast forward to 2020, and I want to make my own music, I was like, I want to make a unapologetically queer reggae song because for years queer people have been dancing to and listening to reggae in spite of how disgustingly homophobic it is. So now I want to make one for queer people. And I don't, I don't know how big the demographic of people uh, that who want to hear that. But I know for me and for my life and how, um, and how I was raised, I know it would mean, it would mean the world to me. And I think for me, making music and doing things and wearing co and wearing outfits and doing different types of hair and, and speaking on certain things. I, I, yes, I have, I, I worry about how, what, how other people want, but I think for me, it starts with me and how it will make me feel. Cause I know if I would feel better about it, or if I want to see someone wearing that, if I want to see that type of hair or that type of music video or hear that type of song, they have to be at least 10 more people who also as well. And if those 10 people live for it and they love it and it makes them feel good, then it was worth it. So for love like this, I definitely that was the route I went, and I wanted to um, do it with uh, different depicting different queer relationships um, to to women, to gay men, to non to non binary folk, like all those things. I wanted to depict all those images in the video and give something that queer people who like that type of music, who love that type of aesthetic, something to like and something to enjoy, and something that they want to share with their friends and family. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And I asked that because I wanted to understand and get that context for this follow up, which is, uh, you know, doing something like that. I think it was one of the super fans in the comments pointed this out too on sibling rivalry that you mentioned your desire to make that video. And yeah. Bob was like, you know, you're, they're going to kill you if you do that. Like, as <laughs> they don't, don't do that. Right. Yeah. And like, there is an inherent danger of pushing those boundaries and those social norms and, and, and putting those things. 
is it's a safe thing to say that your desire to tell that story and, and service those fans and be that voice outweighs any concern or fear of blowback or retaliation or any sense of danger you may be in. And I ask that to explore just how powerful and strong desire can be, that it can drown out those other emotions and feelings. Oh, yeah, for sure. That desire to shine brighter than that and to um, and like my desire to tell that story supersedes mm-hmm. all of the other doubts I have about it. Like it, it honestly, yeah, you, you'll, you'll get a few comments. There'll be a Reddit thread about it. It'll be a um, maybe might end up in the shader on Instagram of this really gay reggae song. How could she, how, how could uh, she how, like why would they do that? But um, my desire to spread that message and to show um, all those folk who love the message, that's mm. more important to me. And that feeling is stronger than all of the other, than the, than the negative ones. And after that's being awesome. in, uh, being, a, I don't even like being someone on TV, because being a celebrity, I think it's just so silly. Uh, <laughs> after being someone on TV for so long, you know, you get all of the, you, like, whether you're doing good or bad, people are going to talk and people are going to have opinions about it, especially today when everyone has access to <laughs> let yeah. you hear their feelings. <laughs> they will tweet at you. They will comment on your videos. They will comment on your Instagram, whatever they, whatever it is. So you just have to, you can't let that bother you. Can't You cannot let yeah. that uh, uh, cripple your desire to want to uh, do the opposite of that. Beautifully said. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Dacker, I was raised Catholic. So growing up from what I pieced together, the mentality was essentially stop. Everything you want is bad unless it's the love of the Lord, (laughs) in which case we've been expecting you. Um, So why why is there this very prominent implication that desire is a negative thing? The idea of wanting things you don't need or wanting things that are bad for you. Where does that come from? Well, I mean, you know, it, it, it threatens the status quo. It threatens the social order. And we've, we've had a couple of amazing examples here with Georgia O'Keeffe and her portrayals of, desi- you know, flowers that make us realize how, how much desire is built into the natural world. You know, Monet's example of the reggae song that, that desire is always changing. It's a radical idea. It's, it's very human. It's about everything. And, and, Culture, the, the status quo wants to constrain our passions. One of my favorite yeah. studies of that is Barbara Ehrenreich's book on dance. And, you know, humans danced around the world, you know, before formalized religion. We danced about everything. The birth of children, getting food, sharing food, preparing for war. It was just everywhere. It was this expression of ecstasy. And then the status quo came in and said, whoa, we've got to rein this in. And that's always at play with the passions and in particular desire and love and and ecstasy is um, it it threatens the status quo. And so that's why we need art. We need the Giorgio Keeps and the Monets to say, think about it this way. Right. Here's a revolutionary new view. And, you know, people often wonder, like, how can art change the world? In some sense, it's just a sound or something on a canvas. And yet it gives us this new form of reality that we can feel yeah it's pretty amazing you know we've talked a lot um about people's misunderstanding about desire yeah but uh, as you mentioned all these different studies and, and references what's something that uh scientists might still be misunderstanding about desire i i mean i think one and it came through today is we used to think desire was just about simple sex and it turns out it's way more fluid and dynamic than we thought uh, and this is just typical of research where we have 
a set of assumptions about something and it's very narrow and often heteronormative and the like. And it's really expanded. We're starting to realize young kids desire all kinds of things, all kinds of people. It's much richer and layered, to use Monet's word, than we ever knew. And, and that's why we do research, you know, is to yeah. catch up with the wisdom of art and things like that. Alan, has like as you've mapped things out and, uh, and as you've gotten deep into your work, has it shifted or changed your perception of desire, how you experience desire, anything of that nature? Has it illuminated <laughs> any areas for you as it has for me? Well, I mean, the way sciences have studied desires in such a unidimensional way um, of thinking about uh, reinforcement learning, you know, we want this reward, we'll do things to get this reward, you can teach uh, animals to get this reward, but it's not thinking of desire as an emotion. Um, and when you look at the expression of desire and how it mixes with other expressions, you realize there's all this really complex, there's a complex space of emotional states that you occupy that get activated by these, these cravings, these desires. Um, and the recognition of desire across cultures tells you that, you know, there's expressions that are pretty universal. Um, mm. and, uh, one of the things that it's interesting about desire though, is that it seems to be something that we can really easily kind of control. So, you know, you probably don't want somebody who's competing with you to know that you desire something that they also want. Right. And so it would make evolutionary sense that this is not something that's compulsive. Um, you want somebody who you're sharing something with to know. Um, and so desire is this very polarizing thing. Um, and that might be why it's so polarizing generally. I mean, institutions want to regulate our desires. They want everybody to kind of share in the things that, the people on top of the institutions uh, want to maintain control over and distribute, and and they, they don't want uh, people's desires to motivate them to be transgressive. Um, and they also use desire as a means to to distinguish us versus them. You know, they yeah. eat that, they mm -hmm. do that, we don't do that. Um, and if it's not something that people inherently want, that's not very useful. But once you can kind of turn off a desire, then suddenly you have the power to kind of alienate others uh, who, who, are, wow. who are just acting kind of normal. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Well, that speaks to the, the powerfulness of it because we've explored a couple of emotions. We're going to explore a bunch more, but so far this is the first one that has leveraged uh, routinely for control uh, that people mm. use it in a way. And I'm sure there's others, but that's just what's standing out to me is just yeah. the amount of examples of how it's used to control society, how to control the church, how to control the, whatever, whatever it may yeah. be. We, we use desire uh, almost against people, which is pretty wild. Mm. Um, yeah. And asserting desire yeah. is a way of regaining control, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, a way of sharing exactly. strength. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's, that's pretty amazing. All right. We're coming into the home stretch. Uh, if there's anything I desire right now, it's more time. But uh, <laughs> we wouldn't be an episode of this show without me asking. And we've touched on this briefly. Um, but the parallels in the animal world. Last week, our friend Jess Taylor burst my bubble telling me that she doesn't necessarily think there's science to support that my dog feels embarrassment. I have to go with the science. Uh, but you're going to have a real hard time convincing me that my dog doesn't desire things. I, I think I've seen that point blank. I know that's happened. What what can you tell me about parallels that we see in the animal kingdom? I mean, so desire is dopamine. Uh, you know, the anticipation of reward is is very clearly signaled in certain dopaminergic cells where you can tell very clearly, like the cell's active, meaning there's a reward that's about to come. The more uncertain the reward is, usually the more active it is. Um, and then once you get it, uh, you you don't have that cell activity anymore, um, but 
with you know the dopaminergic surgic let me start over <laughs> dopaminergic circuitry is present <laughs> in almost every animal down to fruit flies you know people study <laughs> dopamine in drosophila no way, really? fruit flies yeah um, and they the, squeeze dopamine into little fruit flies they got it too they already have it they that's wild have it in there. <laughs> yeah I, wow. i'm sorry i didn't mean to suggest that we're putting it inside fruit flies i, I meant the forces of the universe that create us all they're, they're putting it into fruit flies oh yeah <laughs> those fruit flies they, they desire those bananas those rotting bananas okay? <laughs> <laughs> those desire. exactly that's yeah. amazing Head first, yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah. Let's dive in. And it's not just food; it's sex in every animal, right? And it's. Are you about to tell me about fruit time. fly sex as well, Alan? Because I don't know if I can handle that. <laughs> it's, it's actually. <laughs> you'd be surprised how many scientists spend their entire career studying fruit fly sex. Oddly <laughs> enough, I don't think I would. <laughs> and aggression, those kinds of things. Fruit flies are convenient. You can kind of. Uh, breed them really easily. You can have kind of genetic abnormalities that you insert and then you can see what that does. So yeah, anyway, a lot of people study fruit flies. A lot of people study mice and rats for the same reason. Um, and we see really, really direct correlates of dopaminergic I don't know why I can't say that. Dopaminergic circuitry. I didn't even know. I didn't know that word existed until you just said it. You're still ahead. I'm still not sure it exists. Because it's taken many different forms here. Amazing. The more uncertain you make the reward, the more you want it. And that's what gambling does. You can see the dopaminergic circuitry involved in gambling. You can see how giving people dopaminergic drugs like cocaine makes them want to gamble, right? And it's very clear that, you know, you see the same kinds of behaviors in primates, believe it or not. They do very similar studies with cocaine, you know, literally, and dopamine and reward. You know, Wait. primates will pay for things. They'll gamble money. Yeah, it's crazy. Hang on, you're steamrolling over the cocaine apes story real quick. So, is that that's really, that's how we test that? That's how we figure that out? Yeah, I mean, we take you, you know, mice and we give them drugs. That's how we. That's the first thing we do with any drug. We give that's them science, to mice. Matt. It's just science. This is how we progress to human species. Oh no, I'm not like upset over it. I'm fascinated. I, I, it's it's amazing. We give it to spiders too. We give it to everything. We've given cocaine to every single animal. You guys gave a spider cocaine? What is wrong with you? What were you thinking? That sounds way more like Studio 54 than like a scientific lab. It's like we got the stars, we got the food, we got the drugs. I'm in the wrong line of work, man. There's a, yeah, I mean, there's all these experiments on capuchin monkeys where they, you know, give them money and there's like these little economies where they'll pay for pornography and they'll pay for food. Sometimes they'll pay for their pornography, even if they have a choice really? of pornography versus food. Yeah. And they figure out how to gamble the money and play with it and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on a second. That's if I'm following smart. this, I just got to break. I'm sorry we're over time, but it doesn't matter right now because you just blew my mind. There, there So the, the capuchin monkeys at the experiments... They're, they've established little societies where they will barter and trade goods. The monkeys, they have their own currency that they exchange for monkey pornography. Well, they don't come up with the currency, but we give it to them and we <laughs> imbue it with a meaning where they can, they can, you know, they have, they collect the tokens and they give them to the experimenter and the experimenter gives the monkey something. And then the monkeys will, you know, fight each other for the tokens and you know, do all the things that you think they'll, they'll pay for sex and stuff. 
lots of crazy, crazy shit. Alex, you know, I've seen the same experiment done in Bushwick. <laughs> and I can't, can't confirm this is how it happens. Can't confirm. So yes, yeah, so you see design uh, and other animals. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're familiar with the term backdoor pilot, but you just uh, pretty much pitched an entire second podcast series that you and I are about to start uh, exploring just this. Um, yes, exactly. All right. Well, I hate to cut this off, but we got we got to wrap things up. All right, do one more thing and then we got to go, but go for it. Of course. In the beginning really lit me up because you were talking about how there's this like energy in the room. And I'm just, I'm Mm -hmm. I'm really curious about what, like, is desire contagious? Mm. Great question. Well, there's, you know, I mean, it's, uh, we should do a whole show on collective emotion. You know, the, once we start, when you're at Beyonce or seeing Monet or, I was lucky enough to see Oprah up close to see a friend perform oh for her. It was electric. And that is a physical neurophysiological response. The brains start humming together. Bodies are linked, linked up. And next thing you know, the self vanishes. And it's, it's, a, it's one of our best, best feelings. Monet, wow. you were the one in this weird like geometrical conversation we're having, <laughs> but, but like you're the one who has actually created that in a room and felt yeah. that go. What does that feel like? Yeah. Oh my God. I, th- I think it, honestly, there, there are few words I can use to describe it. I, I think the, the top word is just, just feels magical. Like it feels mm. like mm. it's just like chemical, thing that's happening and everyone just gets on in sync and on one page and it's just a collective you know like ah, in the room and it just feels it just feels good it's just like that dopamine is flowing the capuchin monkeys are like going <laughs> doing their thing it's great <laughs> oh man that capuchin monkey thing is going to be sticking away for a while <laughs> <Same. laughs> All right, we got to wrap things up, sadly. Uh, we got to go. But Monet, uh, hand to God, this is true. When we first started discussing this show and guests, I said, I don't care what it's for, but we have to get Monet on the show. And yeah, you were kind yeah, enough and gracious enough mm. to say yes and make time in your busy schedule oh, for course. our show. And that means a lot. So sincerely, yeah. thank you. Uh, be sure to check thank out Monet's video. Oh, of course. Yeah, you're always welcome. Awesome. The door is always open for you. you know <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, be sure to check out Monet's video for her latest single, Love Like This. You can find that in all things Monet. Monet on her website, monetexchange.com. That's M-O-N-E-T, the letter X-C-H-A-N-G-E.com. I'll put it right down here so you can see that and go there. Uh, also, if you have eyes and like being happy, follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Monet Exchange. No excuse if you aren't already. Get over there and do it. Um, <laughs> And thank you, of course, to my super smart panel that I literally couldn't do this show without all of you. So thank you, Dacker, Alan, and Danielle. Uh, It means the world that you're here with me as well. And we're on this journey together. Uh, To those listening, if you had fun with us, do me a favor. uh, Let people know. Give us a nice review. Tell a friend. From what I understand, and this is a real stat, uh, with only three episodes to our name, we are already 88th in the podcast category of science in France, to which I say, merci. Uh, So let's keep climbing those charts. Next week, we'll be talking about pride. I've got a feeling you won't want to miss that. If you have any questions you'd like answered or you just want to say hi, feel free to email us at thefeelingslab at hume.ai. I'll put that down in the bottom as well. Uh, Farewell for now, my friends, from The Feelings Lab. I'm Matt Forte. Thanks again, everybody, and stay safe out there.